That was a great way to kind of paint a picture of what intimacy with Jesus is all about. And, and I got to thinking about uh, this week and this topic in the Jesus Project and, and remembering that we are the project that he's working on and, and, and the topic of intimacy and that there are a few things that happen in life that, that really bring people into that, that place of intimacy. Uh, eating is, is one of those. I'm going to get into that in a little while later. Another one is road trips. When you go on a road trip with somebody, you get intimate. You're in a car. You're in that, that you know, four by four foot area for eight, ten hours. You get to know people really well. And, and I hope that you have some really good memories of your family, maybe when you were growing up, uh, when you maybe traveling and things like that. I remember when we lived in Indiana just before we moved to Florida. Uh, we lived in southern Indiana, and we had a lot of family up in Indianapolis. And so fairly regularly, my granny and my mom and dad, they'd throw us all in the car and we'd go up for like a day trip. It was about two to three hours, depending on what part of Carmel or Indianapolis we were going to. And they'd toss those kids in the car and we'd go up to see our other cousins and things like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of neat things happened on those trips. We'd, we'd sing, we'd laugh, we'd fight. You know, there'd be that moment where my dad or my granny, whoever was driving, they'd do one of those, you know, um, they just lose their mind for a second. You want me to pull this car over? We're just playing. What? You know, or, or they do that. No one else is touching anybody else for the rest of the trip. That, that happened a few times. And they're breathing my air. And, you know, we get going on all that. Uh, when I was little, seatbelt laws didn't exist. I remember, uh, depending on what vehicle we would drive, instead of calling shotgun, we wanted the back deck. Because like right where the window and you had that whole little area, that was the place to be because you could actually lay down across that. And like it was like your own little place. Uh, I don't know what adults were thinking to let us do that. <laughs> yeah, we're going on the interstate. Jump up in the back deck. <laughs> uh, but road trips, they were fun. One of my fondest memories from a road trip includes my granny and my grandpa Alfred. Now, Grandpa Alfred, what you need to know about this is, is he was retired from the coal mining industry. And, and I don't mean, I mean like, you know, where they went in and used their hands. So he had like the strongest hands and arms, even though he was in his later 70s, of any person I've ever known. Um, he, w- he was somewhat arthritic, and so he couldn't really uh, do a lot of things with his hands anymore. But they, I just remember they were just strong, strong hands. <laughs> and he and my granny decided they were going to take us to Indianapolis to see some of our cousins. It was like a Saturday morning, um, and, and it was summertime, and there were four of us cousins that were always kind of together, and my cousin Kelly was the youngest, and then myself, then my sister, and then Kelly's brother Billy was the oldest, and the four of us were always kind of together. So Granny and, and Grandpa Alfred are taking us up to Indianapolis, and that was the seating order. Kelly, me, my sister, and Billy, we're in the back seat, and we're cruising to Indianapolis to visit some family. It was summertime. My sister had a pet gardener snake. Now, this was before we had, like, DVD players in the car and cell phones and, and hand, handheld Game Boys and things like that. So we always got to bring something on the trip. And on this one, my sister, we had recently caught this thing. Um, do you guys, I'm going to date some of you. Do you remember those, those cans? They were the Charlie's Chips potato chip cans. You remember those? Uh, some thumbs up. Good. We would get those. And again, this one of those things, I don't know why our parents would let us do this. We'd catch a snake and go, hey, we want to keep it. Here's a potato chip can. You know? So we'd poke holes in the lid of this dark can and put a snake in it with some sticks and some grass and think, he's going to be happy there. <laughs> Little gardener snake. And my sister wants to take it to show the cousins because we were rednecks. Um, 
we're traveling down the road. She gets the snake out. And we're kind of passing it back and forth. None of us are squeamish. And it's, you know, just a little gardener snake. And we're messing around. And she ends up back with the snake. And, and my cousin Billy and her are talking. And what had happened is that Billy says to my sister, let's make it bite Grandpa on the ear. <laughs> Again, it's not our fault. We didn't have TVs in the car, okay? So they put this little snake up to my grandpa's ear. And it, it was just kind of avoiding his ear. And my grandfather had kind of big earlobes, too. Uh, so they bring it back down and my sister's holding this snake and Billy starts like doing this to it with his little, you know, throwing his fingers at it and just kind of getting it irritated. And finally it snapped at him and it's good and frustrated. And they put it back up there. And sure enough, that snake (laughs) bit down on my grandpa's ear. I mean, just got a hold of it. He had strong hands, but they didn't always close well. (laughs) So he's trying to yank this thing off of his ear. Right. And we're laughing because it's funny. He finally gets this snake off of his ear, rolls down his window, throws it out, right? And then he backhands me. (laughs) What, even my snake? (laughs) So now my sister's crying because he just threw her snake out the window going down the interstate to Indianapolis. I'm crying because I just get backhanded for no apparent reason. My other two cousins are just laughing because they thought the whole thing was funny. It's good times. Intimacy. We learned that day the things you learn in a car ride, the things that will push buttons. Coincidentally, Granny did pull the car over. Coincidentally, all four of us got a little smack on the bottom and then put back in the car. Um, again, I got beat twice that day. I was just there. But I have great memories of dinner times, too. And again, because of of how we were in in this little town, a lot of our weekend dinners, Fridays and Saturdays especially, we all ended up at Grandma's house. And and my granny is the best cook ever. She always cooked stuff that was amazing, uh, from homemade chicken and dumplings to just, oh, good, good food. And so it was always a big deal when we'd come home from school on a Friday and my mom and dad would be like, hey, grab some stuff. We're going to Granny's house. We're going to have dinner. We were like, yes, Granny's house is cool. Because we already had a designated kids' table. It was always there. And the cousins would come. We'd hang out. There was games for us to play and stuff for us to do. And, and so we'd just goof off at the kid table. We'd laugh. We'd talk about stuff. Dinner at my Granny's house, again, was one of those intimate times. And there's just something about eating together, like I said. And, and you get to know people and bonds are strengthened. I remember one meal in particular. My granny had gone out early in the morning, and again, this in, in Indiana, and she went mushroom hunting, wild mushroom hunting. She took us kids. So we're out in the woods, and we're collecting all these mushrooms, and they, they're amazing because then we come back, and we've got like this whole big bag of wild mushrooms, and she washes them all, and she would fry these mushrooms up. And this particular night, she made up all these fried mushrooms and we had steak and salad and she made some homemade bread. I mean, just the whole works and and like all the family, aunts and uncles and just all kinds of people are there. Now, the one thing my granny hated was doing dishes. So at her house, the plate of choice was the paper plate in the wicker basket holder. Okay. So here she is. We're, we're, we're eating steaks. The kids are at the kids' table. The adults are in the dining room, and they're all eating. Everybody's just going on and on about, man, these steaks are so good. And Grandpa Alfred, again, he's like, it's got good flavor, but it's tough. My steak is tough. I don't know why. Uh, dinner's over. Granny's clearing away the table, and she, she gets to my grandpa's plate, and she pulls it up out of the wicker thing, and she goes, well, no wonder your steak was tough, Alfred. There's a hole. He ate through three layers of paper plate. <laughs> Well, he was cutting his steak. 
She said, no wonder it was tough. You ate three paper plates with it, you know? And then I got backhanded, okay? Um, no, I did That time I didn't. And here, I say all that to say uh, even the editors of Time Magazine recognize the power of eating together as a family. Um, you know, you think back to, to the days when you think of people eating together as a family. And, and, and when I was growing up, it was always the, um, we would think about like Leave it to Beaver. You had June Cleaver with, with, with pearls and an apron on. And, and Ward comes in with his, his evening sweater and his tie. And the, the children are all scrubbed up. And there's steam rising uh, from the green bean casserole. Even the dog is listening intently to what's being said, you know. Just the perfect picture of, of that family thing. And in, in, oh, there it is. See, that's what, that's what dinner looks like at your house, right? That everybody's together. This was from the article. And here's the thing. This is what the, the writer of this article says. This is where the tribe comes to transmit wisdom. Embed expectations. Confess, conspire, forgive, repair. The idealized version is as close to a regular worship service with its litanies and lessons and blessings as a family gets outside of a sanctuary. There's was a writer in, in uh, Time magazine that wrote that. Eating together is a powerful time for a family because it's a time of intimacy. The article continues, yet for all that, there's something about a shared meal, not some holiday blowout, not once in a while, but regularly, reliably, that, that anchors a family, even on nights when the food is fast and the talk is cheap and everyone has someplace else they'd rather be. And on those evenings when the mood is right and the family lingers around together, caught up in an idea or an argument that's being explored and shared, it's, it's being shared in a safe place where no one is stupid or shy or ashamed. You get a glimpse of the power of this habit and why social scientists say such communion acts as a kind of vaccine, protecting kids from all manner of harm. Did you hear that? The word the author used right there in that article was communion. Family mealtime is so powerful because it's a time of communion. It's a time of intimacy with our kids. It's a time of intimacy with each other. Even if you're eating through the paper plate, picking up on things. This word intimacy, it, it evokes different images in the minds of men and women. To women, the word intimacy evokes images of long walks in the rain, conversations over candlelight in which deep feelings are verbalized. Men, that means we use words. <laughs> the, the deep feelings being verbalized. You know, things like the Barry Manilow music on the background, holding hands, laughing together, crying together, sitting together, reading in the same room together, working in the yard together, playing with the kids together, and doing pretty much anything together. Well, to men, the word intimacy evokes different images. So it's a good thing that that's not the kind of intimacy I'm talking about today. The word intimacy means so much more than what we give it credit for sometimes and so much more than what we think. And, and it's also very important to evangelism. And it's, it's more important than what it appears sometimes to most of us than what we realize. You see, to Jesus, the word intimacy, it evokes images of eating and drinking with sinners. Eating with someone in the first century was an intimate act. It wasn't, uh, in the ancient world of eating with somebody, it wasn't just an act of hospitality. You made a statement when you ate with someone. 
When a man ate with someone else in Jesus' time, he was stating that he was willing to be connected with that person and that he accepted that individual or the group with whom he was eating. You see, no boundaries there. Jesus was all about accessibility and intimacy with lost people. And when Jesus ate with people, he was committing an act of intimacy. According to Webster's Dictionary, the word intimate means marked by a very close association. That's exactly what it was. Jesus was marked for criticism and ultimately death because of his very close association with the people whom the Pharisees felt compelled to keep outside the fence, so to speak. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they believed that they existed to identify and protect the boundaries. So since Jesus was not a respecter of those boundaries, he was a threat. In Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, I'm going to read this to you. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. Excuse me, follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, in this event, we see three qualities of intimacy that if we apply them to our relationships today, they will help us to reach people for Jesus. And the first one is connection. The very first quality there is connection. This practice of Jesus being intimate with sinners was one of the biggest reasons that he was criticized by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Uh, One of my favorite authors is Brendan Manning. And in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he explains that in the first century in Palestinian Judaism, the class system was enforced very rigorously. It was legally forbidden to mingle with sinners who were outside the law. You see, things like table fellowship with beggars and tax collectors, which, by the way, tax collectors were viewed as traitors to the national cause because they were collecting taxes from, for Rome from their own people to get a kickback for their own pocket. Okay, so, so to share the table fellowship with beggars and tax collectors and prostitutes was a religious, social, and cultural taboo. They just didn't do it. Because for an Orthodox Orthodox Jew to say, I would like to have dinner with you, is a metaphor implying, I would like to enter into friendship with you. When Jesus ate with sinners, he was connecting with them. There's a a preacher, a minister in greater Los Angeles. His name is Santos Yao. And he said this, Jesus violated the sacred social boundaries of the Jewish community, thus prompting the Jewish leaders to insist on his destruction. Never thought about it that way. I always just thought he was eating with people because he cared. Is Yao right? Did the leaders of the Jewish community really want to kill Jesus because he ate with sinners? Yes. How could they hate Jesus that much? But more importantly, how could they hate sinners that much that they wanted to kill Jesus? Because he made meaningful connections with lost people. You see, the Jewish community in Christ's time was just group-oriented. One's identity and your place in society was determined by the group that you belonged to. And the group took precedence over the individual. 
So protecting the Jewish group was of primary importance for some of these Pharisees. So when Jesus ate with sinners, like Levi the tax collector and other tax collectors, he wasn't just saying, I like you, you're okay, or I'm with you. He was essentially saying, I am you. You know, the way the Jewish community saw things, like eats with like, family eats with family. Pharisees eat with Pharisees. It was pretty simple for them. You know, that's the ultimate blessing of the whole incarnation and and a mystery to many people that don't understand it. Jesus didn't come to visit with us. He he didn't come to just kind of watch over us. He, He came to become us. He came to connect with us. He is us. He's not too good for us. He's not too important for us. He doesn't fly first class. He doesn't ride around in a limousine. He doesn't sit in in the box seats at the baseball game. He doesn't have a corner office in his own parking space. He doesn't have a gold American Express card. He doesn't have vanity plates on his car. He doesn't even have a car. In fact, if he were here today, he would probably ride the bus. You'd probably see him at some place like Waffle House late at night where he'd be able to tell you the name of every server that worked there and how long they've worked there. He'd he'd probably be found looking at the clearance racks at Walmart. He probably wasn't a designer shopper. We'd see him making connections with people. He'd cry when he heard about your miscarriage. He'd celebrate on your 30th wedding anniversary. He'd sit at your dinner table with you anytime and compliment your pot roast, even if it was a little bit dry. He'd eat with you. He'd eat with me because we're his kind of people. And his kind of people, the kind of people with whom Jesus ate, they were viewed by the Jewish community as being a lower class of citizen, a different group, if you will. They actually referred to these people by a special name. People like peasant farmers and craftsmen, day laborers, tax collectors, and anyone else who belonged to this lower class of people, they were called the Amha Aretz, which means people of the soil. And there was a rule among the rabbis about the people of the soil. It, it warned, and this is what it said, the disciples of the learned shall not recline at table in the company of the Amha Aretz. So that the Pharisees, the disciples of the learned people, should not eat with the people of the soil. That was, that was their rule. Remember, like eats with like. Levi and his tax collector friends were definitely people of the soil. But Jesus didn't care because he accepted them. He accepted Levi, and Levi, in turn, accepted Jesus and threw a banquet in his honor, which really made the legalists mad, by the way. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they asked, Luke 5.30. Why? Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners? Because unlike the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and even some modern-day Christians, he wanted to have an intimate relationship with all sinners, including us. He wanted to connect with people, and eating with people is a great way to connect with people. That's the thing. That's, that's so frustrating for me about the Pharisees. They were completely disconnected from the people they were supposed to be helping. They were the religious leaders. They had the answers. But they were disconnected from the people they were supposed to be helping. The, the Jewish leaders in this passage were isolated from the people around them. Luke writes in uh, Luke 5.30, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. They were isolated from other religious groups, their fellow Jews, and the very people they were supposed to be helping. The Pharisees and these teachers of the law prided themselves 
in the people from whom they were isolated. It's no more evident than it is at the opportunities of table fellowship. In his book, Contagious Holiness, Craig Bloomberg wrote this, Judaism viewed mealtimes as important occasions for drawing boundaries. Dining created an intimate setting in which one nurtured friendship with the right kind of people, eating the right kind of food. You may not like being around different people. You may not want to be around people of the soil. But I'd suggest you try getting used to them. Because isolation is not an option for any true Christ follower. And in my opinion, heaven is going to be full of the Amha Aretz. So we need to love them here on earth too. Because we're going to be worshiping with them for eternity. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Folks, salt and light impact their environment. They impact their environment in significant ways. They both exist to make an impact. One of the most worthless things is salt in a salt shaker. You can't do anything. Its value comes when it's poured out. Light shining in the bright daylight is a complete waste of electricity or batteries. When you walk outside in the bright sun and you turn on your flashlight, there's no point. Whatever is fueling the radiance, light and salt both make their biggest impacts when they're not isolated from their environment that they're intended to be used in. This is how some of us try to connect with people in our world sometimes because we want to do what the Bible says. And so, so we're going to connect with these folks and we're going to go out here and, and we're going to eat and we're going to serve people maybe who are less fortunate. And so we got to get ready. So we put, we put these things on and uh, this is kind of what we do as we get ready. We got to get ready so we can go change the world and uh, we got to be prepared and, um, oh, there's two things. Man, these are really sterile. If you're listening online, I'm dressing up like somebody prepared for surgery right now. I've got glasses and gloves and uh, some kind of gown. Doesn't look like it's protect me from much. But uh, I stole these from an ambulance. Um, <laughs> they were like, he's not really sick. I was like, fuck. I'm just kidding. I didn't. They were, they were donated. We put all this stuff on, and we got our glove, we got our hat on, and, and we're fully protected. Listen, if I called you up and I said, hey, come over and have dinner with us tonight, and, and when you got to my house, I answered the door like this, come on in, how would you feel? You'd, you'd either think that I was sick <laughs> or that I felt something was wrong with you, and I didn't want to get it on me. But this is what we do. This is how we approach our world. Come, let me tell you about Jesus. Don't get too close. I don't want to get it on me. But, but you need to hear about him. And we do that, and, and we make people feel dirty. We make them feel less than average. We make them feel worthless. And you know, shame on us. Shame on us for doing that. We need to take this stuff off. We need to not be like that. Because that's not what we were intended for. We need to get rid of this stuff that's keeping us 
from doing what we're called to do. We need to just be done with it. Because Jesus wants us to connect with people. He wants us to be amongst the people of the soil. He wants us to be amongst the people who need him most. So what can we do? Well, you can invite your non-Christian friends into your home for a meal. I don't have any non-Christian friends. Invite your neighbor who you've never spoken to for 10 years to come over and have a meal with you. Even if he is a Christian. But start there. Get to know the people around you. Let them get to know you. Connection. We've got to make connections with people or they're never going to know how awesome Jesus Christ is. Another quality of intimacy is that if we really apply it to our relationships that will help us reach people for Jesus is communication. This is the tough one. Communication is harder than connection, in my opinion, because it's easy to say, hey, how you doing? Hey, come on over. Let's, let's, have a, let's have a hamburger. Let's have a hot dog. The next quality is, is communication. Luke 5.32. In this event, we see Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He has an important message that he wanted to communicate with the sinners, so he ate with them. He connected with them, and he begins to communicate with them. Communication is one of the keys to true intimacy and, and one of the blessings of eating together. In that, that Time Magazine article that I referenced earlier, they also say something important about communication and the family meal time. They say, beyond promoting balance and variety in kids' diets, meals together send the message that citizenship in a family entails certain standards beyond individual whims. This is where a family builds its identity and culture and legends are passed down. Jokes rendered, eventually the, the wider world examined through the lens of the family's values. In addition, younger kids pick up vocabulary and a sense of how conversation is structured. They hear how a problem is solved as you talk something through. They learn to listen to other people's concerns and respect other people's tastes. During dinner time, we have the opportunity to just have great conversations. With our families, we can talk about life, faith. We can talk about our family history. We can tell stories about our grandparents eating through paper plates and getting bitten on the ear by snakes. We can build bonds through communication. And communication is so important for true intimacy. On almost every list I found when I was looking at things, communication is listed as one of the first keys to true intimacy. And you just do a random search. What's the key to intimacy? Communication is right up there. Guys, did you hear that? Communication. It's the first key to true intimacy with the woman in your life. If you've been married for more than a few years and you're still trying to figure that out, it's communication. I just helped you out, okay? Listen to her, talk to her, all right? It's kind of like the judge that was interviewing a woman regarding her divorce. And he asked her, what are the grounds for your divorce? She replied, about four acres and a nice little home in the middle of the property with a stream. He says, no, no, no. I mean, what is the foundation of this case? And she says, it's made of concrete, brick, and mortar. I mean, what are your relations like? She says, well, I have an aunt and uncle living here in town, and my husband's parents live here. He says, do you have a real grudge? She says, no, we have a two-car carport, never had a need for a grudge. He tries again, this judge, he says, is there any infidelity in your marriage? And she says, yes, both my son and my daughter have stereo sets. We don't necessarily like the music, but the answer to your question is yes. Judge says, ma'am, does your husband ever beat you up? She says, yeah, about twice a week. He gets up earlier than me. 
Finally, in frustration, the judge says, lady, why do you want a divorce? She says, oh, I don't want a divorce. I've never wanted a divorce. My husband does. He says he can't communicate with me. (laughs) Communication is the key. Jesus understood that. He understood the importance of communication for true intimacy with lost people. So he connected with them over a meal, and he communicated with them, and he talked with them. And from the passage we see, he talked with them about the importance of repentance. His entire existence was about communication. John tells us in John 1, um, verse 1, and I'm going to jump down to 14, but he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was God's Word in flesh. And the Word that God communicated to us was love. What word are you communicating to the lost people in your world? Are you, you putting these, these surgical things on and saying you're not good enough or you're not worth my time or you're inconvenient? Your life is too messed up. I don't, I don't have the energy to help you get out of this mess that you've gotten yourself into. We communicate a lot of things and something we really need to communicate to the lost people in our world is that God loves you and that we love you. You see, expressed love is the key to to any healthy relationship. It's it's not complicated. Let's just communicate our love to lost people. Another quality quality of intimacy that if we apply it to our relationships will help us reach people for Jesus is commitment. Commitment. Luke 5.32. Jesus was committed to lost people. And so he called them to repentance. Repentance is supposed to be a life-changing event through which we find life and hope in Jesus Christ. We repent many times in our life, but each moment of repentance is a reaffirmation of our commitment to Jesus Christ. The day we stop repenting is the day that our commitment to Jesus starts to die. I'll say that again. The day, Christians, that we stop repenting is the day that our commitment to Jesus starts to die. It's that time when we start to think we've, we've, we've gotten beyond him. We've gotten to this great place by ourselves and we forget how we got to our places of salvation and grace and those kind of things. And we stop repenting. You see, Jesus was committed to lost people. He was so committed that he died for them. Commitment is crucially important to true intimacy in our relationships And true intimacy is not required through just a chance meeting or a one-time hangout, but through a long-term commitment with people. I believe we need to have these kinds of bonds in our relationships with other Christians, and we need to have these kinds of relationships with our lost friends. Our lost friends need to know that we're committed to loving them through their questions, whether we think they're stupid questions or not. Garibaldi was an Italian general He's considered to be one of Italy's fathers of the fatherland. He had an incredibly committed volunteer army. He would appeal for recruits, and this is how he would do it. He would say, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not with his lips only follow me. That's intense. Way to win friends and influence people, huh? 
But I'd like to say to us, let him who loves lost people with his heart and not with his lips only follow Jesus by being as committed to their salvation as he was and still is. You see, if we're committed to reaching lost people for Jesus, we will do a few things. We will go to them. We will get to know them. We will go along with them, alongside them. Jesus wanted to save lost people, so he had an intimate involvement with them. He connected with them, he communicated with them, and he committed himself to them. He was fully devoted to reaching lost people. So he did the most intimate thing he could. He ate with them. I can't say it any better than Brennan Manning did. He writes this. He says, here is revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, addicts, IRS agents, AIDS victims, and even used car salesmen. I thought it was funny he put them at the end of the list, but that's another sermon. Jesus not only talks with these people, he dines with them. Fully aware that his table fellowship with sinners will raise the eyebrows of the religious bureaucrats who hold up the robes and insignia of their authority to justify their condemnation of truth and their rejection of the gospel of grace. Brothers and sisters, intimacy is complicated. It's messy, it's risky, and it's hard work. A couple invited some people to dinner once, and at the table, the wife turned to their six-year-old daughter and said, hey, would you, would you like to say the blessing? And the daughter said, I wouldn't know what to say. And so the, the mother says, well, just, just repeat what you hear me say. So the daughter bowed her head and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Intimacy is complicated and messy, and it's risky, and it's hard work. But as you build intentional relationships where your friends can be introduced to Christ, sometimes you're going to ask yourself, why on earth did I invite these people to dinner? And at those times when you're wondering if you really want to develop an intimate relationship with a lost person, remind yourself of this. You're eating with them now because you want to eat with them for all eternity. What's your relationship with Jesus Christ like? Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Are you connected to him? Do you regularly communicate with him? Are you committed to him? We're going to do something a little bit different today during our decision time. Not to take away from anything that may be on your heart. And, and if, if baptism is, is where you're at, come forward and we'll, we'll move this stuff off the way and, and we're ready. But this morning I want you to just reflect on your relationship with God. Um, and in just a minute, the elders are going to come forward and, and we'll be up here and we're going to sing our decision song. And, and I really, if you know the song, sing it. But I'd like for everybody to just go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand now. Um, think on these words. As, as, you, as you hear this song, see how it applies to your life. I want to invite you to spend some time with God. If you need prayer, like I said, the elders, elders will be up here on the sides and in the, in the front here, and they'll be happy to pray with you. But I want you to focus and spend this time focusing on your relationship with God. I'm going to pray, 
and then we're going to sing, okay? Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you have made the, just created this way so that we can be intimate with you, so, so that we can be committed to your son, so that we can represent him. And Lord, I pray that as we have this time of, of decision, as we think about our lives, as we think about where we've been, as we think about where we are right now, that we'll reflect on our relationship with your son and that, that we'll act on whatever has been revealed to us today. If we need accountability, if we need prayer, if, if we just need to reappoint Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives and, and begin with another day of, of rededication and repentance, I, I pray that, that you will move in each one of us accordingly. In your son's name we pray. Amen. That's, that's where we are. I hope as you leave here today, your focal point will be building your intimacy with Christ so that you can go out and authentically love others. I'm, I'm glad you were here with us today. It's been awesome to worship with you all. I love getting into the Word and sharing with you. When you leave, as you go from here today, remember that God wants to have an intimate relationship with you. And he's big enough that he can have an intimate relationship with every one of us. And not just here in this room, but every one of us around the world that he created. And he wants to have an intimate relationship with us so that we can build strong, intimate relationships with others that are centered around his son, Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, Dylan and I, we always get a little crazy in the house. And he's been playing football. He's, he's been exercising. He's getting faster. And um, he came up and whacked me with a pillow. And he was like, hi, huh, you'll never catch me. I'm still not as slow as I look. <laughs> and I caught him. And the only way to make him suffer was to start kissing him and hugging him. And stop, stop. Same thing. God's faster than he looks. And he's faster than we think he is. Don't make him chase you down to give you a hug and tell you what he needs from you. We know what he's asked us to do. So let's do it. Have a great week. God bless.